Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again uh, via technology. Looking forward to the day when we're together again physically. Uh, we're continuing our series on hearing God's voice and knowing his will. Last week, we talked about how to develop the skill of recognizing God's voice when he speaks. And we talked about how God is speaking to us on an ongoing basis, not constantly, but whenever he chooses and often. And we just need to develop the skill of, of being able to discern what is God's voice as opposed to what's my own will, what is the voice of, of my friends, my, the expectations of culture, and the things that, that uh, our society says to us. So, and what we said was that's a lifelong process. That's something you develop over a lifetime of following Christ. And, and that's exciting that we can develop that skill, but I know what a lot of you were thinking because it's what I've thought many times Lifelong process, great, and I want to be part of that, but I've got a big decision to make now. And frankly, I'm not very far along on that lifelong process, so how do I make a good decision? And, and so I want to talk about today how, uh, how to know God's will, how to know what to do in a particular decision. So just for a couple of examples, these are purely hypothetical examples. I promise I'm not thinking of any specific person when I say this, but let's, let's imagine there's a woman in her middle years and the man she's been seeing asks her to marry him. And he's someone that she likes very much that she can see herself with. But on the other hand, uh, her kids don't like him at all. Her kids don't want them to get married. And how do you make a decision like that? How do you know what God wants you to do? Another very different example, again, hypothetical. Let's say you've got a high school senior who, coming into, the, coming into graduation time, he's got his college years all planned out. He's selected a university in the state, not far away from home. Financing is pretty well set up so that he won't have oppressive debt when he graduates. Everything is all settled. And then he hears unexpectedly that he's been accepted into a, one of those elite Northeastern schools. And... That's exciting, but what do you do? How do you make a decision like that between what is simple and safe and familiar and something exciting and challenging and potentially groundbreaking? How, how do you know what to do? How do you know what God's will is? So I want to start today with a, a passage of scripture that may seem unusual because it's not really about decision making, but I'm going to show you, I hope, that it really is, that ultimately in the end, it, it applies to decision-making. And let me show you what I mean. Luke 11, verses 11 through 13. This is the words of Jesus. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And part of understanding why this teaching is so profound is realizing that in Jesus' day, the gods of all the other religions, and we see this when we study Greek philosophy, Greek mythology, uh, or when we read the myths of other ancient religions, all those religions taught about gods who acted like human kings. In other words, a human king his purpose, his primary purpose was to maintain power. Everything he did was ultimately self-interested because he was human, just like us. Uh, and, and so the, the trick of ancient religion, just like most religion today, was how do I get the gods to favor me? Because if I'm on the bad side of them, I'm going to have poor harvest. My wife's not going to bear children. I, I'm, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die. 
how do I get the gods to favor me? So I'm going to do these rituals, I'm going to follow these rules, and that will manipulate the gods into blessing me. Jesus tells this story to say, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God I believe in, the God who is real, he's not like those other gods. He's not like a human king at all. He's, he's more like a good father. All of us who are parents, and we seek to be good parents, or all of us who grew up with good parents, and I think that's many of us who are watching right now, we know what that means. Because a good father or a good mother, they want to give their children what their kids need. Now, if the kid comes to them and says, mom, dad, I need this brand new sports car. Mom, dad, I need this brand new gaming system. They might say no. But if the kid comes to them and says, mom, dad, I'm hungry. I need some food. What Jesus' point is, what father, what mother would deny their children food? There's no good parent who would do that. And his point is, if you, as earthly mothers and fathers who are sinners, who are selfish most of the time anyway, if you're willing to do that for your children, how much more is the perfect father who has no sin, who has no sin nature, who loves us perfectly, how much more willing is he to give you what you need? Doesn't mean he'll give you everything you ask for, but when you ask for something you really need, he'll give it. And when you read that passage in its larger context, it's in the context of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is talking about how God wants to give us the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the Holy Spirit for? The Holy Spirit is God in spirit form who we can ask questions of, who can guide us into all truth, who can help us make good decisions, who can, who can give us wisdom. So essentially what Jesus is saying is, if you come to God, this is a great promise. If you come to God and you've got a big decision to make, God's not up there saying, yeah, I know what he should do, but I'm going to hide it from him because... I don't really feel like giving him what he wants. That's not the kind of father he is. God's not up there saying, okay, if you'll go ahead and give a bunch of money to the church, or if you'll go ahead and, and offer your, your life in ministry, I might consider telling you the answer. No, God wants you to have the answer. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to us. When we come to him with a decision to make, he wants us to know the truth. He wants us to know the right way. But... And here's what Jesus doesn't say, but he says it in other places. God is not like a magic eight ball. You know what magic eight balls are? Some of you, maybe you're not familiar with these. Most of you are. Magic eight ball was a little, little uh, like a, a pool ball, uh, and you would, you would ask it a question, you'd shake it up, and a little window would appear, and it would say yes, no, or maybe. And people would use those to make decisions. God's not like that. When we have a decision to make, we don't just walk outside and shout into the sky, should I marry this person? Should I go to this university? And then watch as the letters appear in the air. That's not the way God works. Because if they did, then we'd use God as a magic eight ball. We'd come to him with decisions. When we got the answer, we'd walk away and say, thanks God, we'd do our own thing. See, God has a broader purpose. God has something bigger in mind. Believe it or not, God cares about who you marry and where you go to college and what you do for a job and how you spend your money, but God is about something bigger than even those things. So when we come to him with our big decisions, he says, okay, if I have a will in this, I will let you know, but what I'm doing right now is working to shape you into the character of my son, Jesus Christ. What I'm doing right now is trying to help you become uh, a person who fulfills the purpose I created you for, who, who has these transforming relationships with people who need me. So we need to always remember when we come to God with decisions, he's got something bigger in mind than what we're coming to him for. So with that in mind, I want to give you three questions, three questions we should always ask 
to help us discover what God's will is in any decision. You ready? Number one, am I truly seeking God's will? Last week, we talked about this some when we talked about being honest with yourself when you're trying to hear the voice of God, learning to discern between my desires and God's voice. We have to be honest and say, okay, God, I want to know your will, but the truth is I want you to say this. I have a preference in this. We have to be honest. And that's what I'm talking about here. Perfect story about it in the scriptures. Abraham and Sarah, we, most of you probably know this story. Abraham and Sarah were older past childbearing age, when God came to them and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You've never been able to have children before, but I'm going to turn you into a great nation. And through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And Abraham and Sarah waited for a few years and nothing happened. Sarah comes to Abraham one day and says, listen, we must have misinterpreted God. I'm not pregnant. I've never been pregnant. It doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So I've got this slave girl, Hagar. She's young. She's fertile. Why don't you have a baby with her? Now, you and I can look at that today and see how monstrous it is. I mean, we would call that rape. This, is, this girl had no, uh, no part in the decision, no will in the decision. She's a slave, and she's being exploited. A, a child is born of this union. They name him Ishmael. Years later, God comes to Abraham and says, oh, by the way, Sarah's still going to have a baby. The promise still holds. And Abraham says, wait, Lord, she's already had a baby. Why don't you fulfill your promise and make a great nation out of Ishmael? because he's already here. And God says, well, I will make a great nation out of Ishmael. I care about him. He matters to me. But my promise was through Sarah, and that's still going to happen. You see what Abraham was trying to do, right? He was trying to get God to endorse his already made decision. He was trying to say, okay, Lord, I already made this choice. Now, won't you back it up? Why don't you bless it? And that's, I'm afraid, what we often do when we come to God asking his will. I mean, I do that in my own marriage. I, I will go to Carrie sometimes and I'll say, okay, do you like this blue shirt or this red shirt? And she'll say, mm, I like the blue one. And I'll say, really? Because I kind of prefer the red one. And she'll say, then why did you ask me? And the answer is, well, because I wanted to feel good about the choice I was making. I wanted you to endorse my decision. We need to come to God and we need to be honest with him and say, Lord, I really want to know your will. So if there's any part of me that's trying to manipulate you into choosing one way or the other, if I have a preference in this that's going to get in the way of me hearing your voice, please make that known to me. Help me to seek your will truly. We need to be honest with God and with ourselves. Am I truly seeking God's will? Question number two, and this is the one that will make probably 80 or 90% of our decisions for us. Does the Bible speak directly about my decision. See, God's word is, is full of commands, and those commands apply to literally thousands of decisions you and I make every day. And here's the thing. If you find a command in scripture that applies directly to the decision you're trying to make, your work is done. You don't need to pray about it anymore. You don't need to ask anyone's advice. Just for a very simple example, I don't have to pray about whether or not to, to shoplift uh, a dinner jacket from Kohl's. I don't even know if they sell dinner jackets, but you know what I mean. I don't have to pray about whether I should, uh, whether I should steal something from someone else because the Bible is clear on that. That's not a decision that's hard to make. It, it is directly addressed in Scripture. Let me give you a more complicated example. Let's go back to our, our woman in her middle years. A man has proposed to her. She's trying to consider, should I marry him? Well, 
ask the question, is he a believer in Jesus? Not just an intellectual believer, is, is he a follower of Christ? Because if he's not, then the answer is clear from Scripture. The answer must be no. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, let me just pause here. This is not my sermon topic, but I need to address this because when people hear that, they immediately kind of recoil against it. I, I know I did. When I was a teenager, the first time I heard my pastor say, Christians should not date non-Christians. Christians should not marry non-Christians because of 2 Corinthians 6.14. I thought, well, that sounds really snobby and prejudicial. But it's not because unbelievers or members of other religions are in some way inferior to Christians. That's not what it means. Here's what it does mean. When you become a follower of Jesus, your life changes trajectory. You're not just headed to heaven. You're becoming a different person. The Holy Spirit enters you and is, is developing in you, you into someone new. That's something that, that takes place over the course of an entire lifetime. That's a journey you start the day you start following Jesus. Your life is not just about becoming like him, though. It's also about serving others. It's also about serving a higher purpose, the kingdom of God on earth. Now, if you are with someone who is not a follower of Jesus, they're not on that journey. They're not headed in that direction. And that's why Jesus uses the metaphor of a yoke. Now, we don't use yokes. We haven't for hundreds of years, but a yoke was, a, was an iron or, or a wooden bar that you'd place over the shoulders of a pack animal so they could pull a plow. And, and the idea is two oxen, let's say, who are yoked together, pulling a plow. If one of them wants to go to the left and the other one wants to go straight, then it's not going to work. They're going to frustrate each other. They're going to hurt each other. Don't be yoked together when you're going in different directions. In the same way, if, if you marry someone who's not a believer in Jesus, I've seen it over and over and over again. You may think, well, you know, we, we have everything in common except our faith. We can overcome that. What happens is either you stop your journey toward Jesus so you can stick with this person you're married to. For the sake of your marriage, you stop growing in Christ and serving him, or you keep on serving God and your spouse resents it because you're going in a different direction than he or she is. I've seen it happen too many times. And you may say, yes, but I love them and I want to lead them to Christ. And I'm just here to tell you your best chance of leading them to Christ is saying, I love you, but I love Jesus more. And I can't go with him and stay with you. So that's an example of a scripture verse that speaks directly uh, to a particular decision and how to apply it. And, and let me just sum all this up, this, this point up by saying, we need to remember that God's commands are not there to make life difficult for us. They're there to spare us from trouble. God gives us his commands because he loves us. I can think back to my teenage years, and I can think back to a lot of bad decisions that I avoided, not because I was smart or wise or even good, but because I had good parents. I mean, there were times when my, my friends wanted me to stay out all night on a Saturday night with them. And I knew I couldn't because my parents weren't going to let me miss church on Sunday morning. Uh, there were parties that I knew I, it wasn't even useful for me to ask my mom and dad if I could go. I knew they would say no. There were pranks that my, my teenage friends wanted me to be involved in, you know, being free-range idiots like most teenage boys. And I had to say no, not because I was any less idiotic, but because I knew my parents would kill me if they found out I did something like that. How many hundreds of bad decisions did I avoid 
not because of any inherent goodness or wisdom in me, but because my parents set up boundaries. Why did they set up those boundaries? Because they wanted to keep me from having fun? No, because they loved me, because they knew what was best for me. I may not have been willing to acknowledge that when I was a kid. As a kid, I did what they said because I feared what might happen otherwise. But looking back, I know, as a parent now, I know. And in the same way, God's commands are not there to weed out the sinners. They're not there to make the really good people rise to the top. They're not there to test us. God's commands are there because he loves us, because he knows more about life than us. So if there is a command in Scripture that speaks directly about your decision, your decision is already made. Go with what God says. And that leads me to the third question. The third question is, are there any biblical principles that apply to my decision? In other words, if nothing in the Bible speaks directly about the decision I'm making, and let's face it, there are plenty of real-world scenarios that God's Word does not directly speak about. If that's the case, jump to the next stage and say, are there any principles in Scripture, not just direct commands, but principles in Scripture I can use to apply to this situation? Now, what do I mean when I say biblical principle? What's the difference between a principle and a command? Well, a principle is a statement that shows us who God is and how He wants us to live that we can apply to a wide variety of subjects. So let me just give you one example. Matthew 6, 33, very familiar verse to a lot of us. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you. The context of that is Jesus is saying, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Don't waste your time being anxious because God's gonna provide for you as long as you put, as long as you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I think that's a biblical principle that can be applied to all kinds of decisions. So let's dive a little deeper. What does he mean by seek first his kingdom? The kingdom of God is what God's accomplishing on earth. It's him becoming king in the hearts of others. So a person who seeks God's kingdom first is a person who more than their job, more than their hobbies, more than anything else, they want to be used by God to help others make Jesus king. Put it another way, to seek God's kingdom first is to say my top priority is loving others in Jesus' name and making him known to other people by by serving them in his name. And then he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. God's righteousness is the character that he is trying to replace or, 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 or place into us, reincarnate in us. So to seek God's righteousness first means my other top priority is I want to become just like Jesus and I'm going to make decisions that help me grow closer to him. So let's apply that to some hypothetical scenarios. Should I take this job? Well, ask yourself the question. If I take this job, will it help me seek God's kingdom and his righteousness above all things? If the answer is, well, you know, honestly, I'm going to be working so many hours for the first several years, I won't even be able to serve God. I'm just going to be working nonstop. I won't even be able to be with my kids. Well, there's your answer. On the other hand, if you look at it and, and as you pray, God seems to say to you, if you go to this place, you're going to be my missionary to that office, to that workplace. If you go to this place, I'm going to use you to steer that whole environment in a different direction. Then you can go with the, with the assurance that God has, has said, I'm going to use you. You are seeking first my kingdom and my righteousness. Another decision. Let's say you're on the point of retirement. You're still good at your job. You still love your work, but you know you can afford to retire and all your other friends have retired. Should you do that? 
Well, ask yourself the question. What, what better serves my desire to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first? If you're still a good influence, a mentor to people who work with you and under you, if God is still using you in that workplace, then that may be God saying to you, you know, keep on working. You're doing good things here. Don't stop what I'm doing in your, in your life. On the other hand, if, if you pray about it and you feel God saying, if you will go ahead and step away from career and that grind, I've got all these things over here for you to do for me, fulfilling things, exciting things that you'll, you'll be able to do now that you have free time. Again, make the decision based on God's kingdom and righteousness. That's one way to apply a biblical principle. Let's apply that to our two hypothetical scenarios. This woman who's dating this man, and should they get married or not? Let's say he is a believer, so there's no direct biblical command that applies to her decision. But what about this principle of seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness? She should ask herself, when I'm with him, since I've been with him, have I grown closer to the Lord or have I drifted further away? Have I become more excited about and more equipped to serve others, to love others in his name? Or has, has this changed my priorities and made me more self-centered? She should ask her friends. She should ask people who will be honest with her. Do, am I a better person since I've been with him? Or do you not like the person I'm becoming? Similar thing with our, our hypothetical college student. Should he go to the, the prestigious university in the Northeast or stick around close to home? Well, ask the question, what's going to serve uh, seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness first? If I go away to that prestigious elite college in, in the Northeast, does that mean I'm going to be so loaded down with debt that I won't be able to serve God until I get it all paid off? On the other hand, does it mean that God is calling me to, to head down up there and get away from some influences down here that are holding me back. And up there, I can go and, and become part of a Christian organization on campus and find a church and, and be someone who, who really represents Christ well in that environment. Maybe that's God's way of equipping me for some greater work that comes later on. You should always use biblical principles and, and seek ways to apply them to your decisions. And if you've done those three things, if you've asked those three questions and you still don't know, you still can't truly discern God's will. Let me just advise you to pray something like this. Lord, I want to know your will, and you know that I do. I've searched my heart to make sure that I'm, I'm truly seeking your will and not my own. I've searched your word to try to find any command or principle that will help me make the decision, and I've come up empty. I've even talked to the wisest friends I know, and they don't seem to have any advice for me. So, Lord, I, I just I pray that in some other way you would show me your will. And Lord, do it in your way, in your time. I just want to know you better. In fact, Lord, whether you answer my question or not, I pray that this would be a time where I come to know you better than I've ever known you before. And then follow through with that. Spend extra time in his presence. Start getting up earlier in the morning so you can spend extra time in his word. Uh, take time at lunch break or at night. Cancel Netflix, whatever you have to do. To, to spend extra time with him. You may even consider fasting. And by the way, not as a way of manipulating God, like, hey, God, I skipped lunch. Now, won't you give me an answer? But instead, fasting is a way of centering our minds on God. I've been off social media for a week. I've, I haven't eaten for 24 hours. That's my way of centering my thoughts on the Lord and saying, God, I just want to know you better. And it could be that God will give you an answer in an unexpected way at an unexpected time while you're mowing the yard, while you're changing a diaper, while you're, uh, while, you're, while you're driving to work. It could be that you still won't hear a definitive answer. And if that's the case, just understand 
that may be God's answer of saying, you do whatever you want to in this decision, because this decision doesn't impact my ultimate will in your life. You do what seems best to you. Meanwhile, focus on me. See, that should be your goal. The exciting thing is every time we have a decision to make, listen to this, every time we have a big decision, it reminds us of how much we need the Lord. It's an opportunity for us to draw nearer to him than we ever have before. So don't waste that. Take advantage of that. Get to know him better. Spend time in his presence. Learn to hear his voice. And you're going to grow through that process. Let me just say one more thing and then I'm done. As we've been talking about this, I'm sure there are some of you that have been filled with a sense of sadness, regret, because you're thinking back on decisions you've made in the past that weren't good ones. Maybe a decision that was made selfishly, a decision that was made impulsively, or just a decision that was made when you didn't have all the facts and you moved forward and now you really regret it. All of us, I think, can, can name decisions we regret. And for some of us, there are decisions we're still digging ourselves out of the pile that, uh, of that collapse. The, the thing, the most encouraging thing I can say, in fact, the best news I can give you is, there was a day when, when God himself had a decision to make and he chose what to all the world looked like a bad decision. He gave up his kingly authority, his kingly prerogatives to become a poor peasant. He gave up heaven to experience hell on earth for us. He gave up his righteousness to become sin in our place. That's a terrible trade by any measure. And yet, he has never regretted that decision. Because of the cross, every bad decision you and I have ever made is covered. It is, it is completely covered by his love and his grace. Think about that. Think about the joy that Jesus feels when he looks at the cross, when he thinks of the cost that it, that it cost him to buy our salvation and it brings him joy, and so should it for us.